We are amidst some of the most packed days in the Jewish calendar. Of course, we finished Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the 10 days of repentance. And five days after Yom Kippur, we begin the festival of Sukkot, of Sukkot. And the moniker of this festival is Zman Simchasenu, the time of our joy. And it's a packed holiday. We, of course, build a sukkah, a temporary dwelling place that's going to serve as our home for these seven days. For the course of seven days, we also assemble the four special species as indicated by the Torah, and we shake them each day. And then we have, so we have seven days of Sukkot, of Sukkot, and the seventh of those days is also called Hoshana Rabbah. And that's followed by the eighth day, which is called Shmini Atzeres. And in the diaspora, we have a ninth day, which is called Simchas Torah, the celebration of Torah. And that's when we complete the cycle of reading the Torah, and we begin back from Genesis from Bracious anew again. So there's a lot of things going on during these days. And what I wanted to do is to examine the two mitzvos of this festival. The mitzvah of taking the lulav, together with the other species, and shaking it each of these seven days. And the other mitzvah, the mitzvah, to sit in the sukkah, in the temporary dwelling place, examine these mitzvahs, see what they teach us about the festival in general, and see how they can guide us to have a more uplifting and more meaningful and more productive festival. I want to aim to discuss Hoshana Rabbah, that seventh day, and Shmini Atzeres, the eighth day, and Simchas Torah, the ninth day, please God, next week. So I think a good place to start the discussion of Sukkot is to try to understand the connection between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Now, you would imagine that there's an argument to be made that we have all these amazing festivals. Maybe we should spread them out So that way, they're more evenly distributed throughout the calendar year. We have Rosh Hashanah, very important day. Yom Kippur, very important day. And right away, we have Sukkot. Now, you may think that the reason why we have Sukkot is because some special event happened on that day. And therefore, we are reenacting it. And it just happens to be that that is a very busy time of the calendar. But the truth is that unlike all the other festivals, there doesn't seem to be an event in history that corresponds to this particular date in the calendar, five days after Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, of course, that's the anniversary of when God forgave the Jewish people. Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of when God created Adam. And Pesach, of course, is the anniversary of the Exodus. And Shavuot is the anniversary of the Revelation at Sinai. The festival of Sukkot is not, at least to my knowledge, an anniversary of any special significant event. The Torah tells us, for seven days you sit in the sukkah, because over the course of 40 years in the wilderness, the Almighty made a sukkah for us to dwell in, which may refer to the clouds of glory, it may refer to actual sukkahs like huts that we sat, that we dwelled in over the course of the 40 years in the wilderness, but there doesn't seem to be any 
event that is tying this particular festival to this particular date in the calendar. So it seems like there's some sort of continuity, there's some sort of continuation in the theme of Sukkot, of Sukkot, as a continuation of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Now, it's clearly evident from all the commentaries that there's something there. So, for example, the Halacha tells us that right away after Yom Kippur, we are supposed to begin building our sukkah. It's almost like we we don't miss a beat. We don't skip any time. There's this uninterrupted continuum connecting the Day of Atonement and the Festival of Joy. So our sages tell us some interesting ideas. For one, we're told the following insight, that just as Yom Kippur is the day designated for forgiveness, designated for atonement, the day where the Almighty is most likely to forgive our sins, that attitude, so to speak, continues from the period spanning from Yom Kippur to Sukkot, and really extending into the festival of Sukkot. And as we will hopefully see next week, the Kabbalists reveal to us that Hoshana Rabbah, which is the last of the seven days of Sukkot, is a version of Yom Kippur on its own, as we shall yet see. But just as there is this moment, this day of forgiveness on Yom Kippur, that really extends all the way to Sukkot and perhaps even into Sukkot as well. Now the Talmud tells us something really interesting. The Talmud tells us that the word Hasatan, which means the Satan, the Satan, if you count the gematria, the numerical value, the number will calculate to 364. And the Talmud tells us that the reason why Hasatan equals 364, that's coming to tell you that there's one day in the calendar year out of 365 days, there's only one day that this force called the Satan, there's one day that he has no power. And that refers to Yom Kippur. And therefore, that's the day that's most auspicious for us to overcome, for us to power through, so to speak, for us to connect to God, because the normal barrier called the Satan is not present on this day. Now, the commentaries point out that the math here seems to be a little bit shaky, or at least the argument of the Talmud seems a little bit off. Because this thing called the Satan, it really is a Satan. It's not ha-Satan, not the Satan. It's the Satan. It's, it's a Satan. And the way the word is actually spelled is Satan. Why would the Talmud say ha-Satan, meaning the Satan, the Satan, and why would it not just call it Satan? So the commentaries tell us that actually both of them are correct. What would happen if we would deduct the letter He from the word Hasatan and just spell out the word Satan? 
the numerical value, if you deduct the letter Hey, which equals number five, so you deduct five from 364, then you get, of course, 359. And what this is indicating, we're told, that really there's five more days where the Satan has no power or minimal power, and those are the five days spanning Yom Kippur and Sukkot. So we're told that there's some sort of connection here, that the penumbra of Yom Kippur seems to extend into the days after Yom Kippur, which of course is highly comforting. You know, some people feel, hey, Yom Kippur is such an opportunity, but I was so cranky, I was so hungry, I couldn't maximize the moment. And here we find out in these very reputable sources that some of the effects of Yom Kippur linger, at a minimum, for five days following Yom Kippur. Now, whenever we talk about this subject, I want to make the important distinction and qualification. The Talmud tells us that there is a three-headed monster called the Yetzirah, evil inclination, Satan, the Satan, and Malachamaves, the angel of death. And this force, of course, is a force that we believe is engineered by God. This is an angel of God that's there to create resistance. If we didn't have this force that was making a connection with God difficult, then having a connection with God would be of no value. We'd be like angels. So they might create some resistance that we have to overcome. What's this resistance? It's this three-headed monster. It's called the Yetzara. It's called the Satan. It's called the Malachamaves. It's called the evil inclination, the Satan, and the angel of death. And these are three components of this force engineered by God. In the secular sources or in the non-Jewish sources, the word Satan has a very different meaning, very different connotation. That refers to an entity, so to speak, that has independent power outside of God. So I want to make it very clear. Although we say that we believe in the concept of Satan, and they say that they believe in the concept of Satan. We talk about the Satan. They talk about the Satan. They're not the same thing. And as the saying goes, the devil is in the details. So that's a good way to begin this discussion, that there's some sort of continuum that's happening here, connecting the festival of Sukkot to the days that preceded it, and of course, the days that are the connecting days, they still have some of the flavor of Yom Kippur. Now, it's also interesting, if we examine this a little bit deeper, we discover some new insights. And I want to present an idea which really is threaded throughout the whole festival of Sukkot in all kinds of ways. But would also explain, you know, what the connection or the continuation, so to speak, on a big picture, on a high level, What's the connection between Yom Kippur and Sukkot? And my grandfather, blessed memory, he introduced this approach with a question. Of course, every festival in the Jewish calendar, there's some sort of spiritual agenda. There's something that we have to accomplish. There's some focus of the day that's there to help us complete ourselves spiritually. 
And the obvious question is, you know, we just finished Yom Kippur. And if we did Yom Kippur properly, well, we were atoned. We were expiated. We have been cleansed from all traces of sin, from all traces of imperfection. So if we're perfect, finishing Yom Kippur, why do we emerge from Yom Kippur and right away be thrust into Sukkot? And we have these connecting days, of course, but there's almost no break, and that's almost by design. It's almost as if there's two halves of one whole, and one half is being fulfilled on Yom Kippur, and the second half is being completed on Sukkot. So my grandfather, blessed memory, says something very powerful. And again, it's something which is threaded throughout the festival of Sukkot. Of course, the goal of man in this world is to become close to God, to become close to our Creator. Now, of course, there's resistance, like we mentioned earlier. We have the Yetzirah, we have the Satan, we have the angel of death, we have sin, we have a body. Of course, we have this duality of the soul and the body, and we're trying to identify as our soul and trying to connect to our roots, to the spiritual world, not be bribed and deluded and duped by the physical world. We have a goal, and that is to connect to God, but there are barriers obstacles separating us from our creator. There's distance between us and God. But if you examine it very closely, you'll notice that there's internal barriers and there are external barriers. There's internal distance and there's external distance. Yom Kippur and Sukkot together are there and designed and engineered to get rid of both kinds of obstacles, both kinds of distances. Yom Kippur, we start internally. It's all about addressing our sin. It's all about addressing the Yitzhara. It's all about trying to remove from within ourselves those forces that are corrupting our internal connection to God. And like we mentioned in the past, Yom Kippur is about the circumcision, so to speak, of our heart. Internally, in our heart, in our soul, in our internal connection to God, there's problems, there's alloys, there are disruptors, there's sin, there's all kinds of schmutz, as they say in Yiddish, that is corrupting us internally. And Yom Kippur is the day to excise all of that and to remove all the internal barriers that we have separating us from God. But there are other barriers that prevent the connection from being complete. And those are not the internal barriers, but the external barriers. My grandfather, blessed memory, will point out an idea that the word olam, meaning world, the root, the Hebraic root, the etymological root of the word is he'elem, which means obfuscation. When something is hidden, 
This world is engineered to hide God. The purpose of this world is, is that people could live here and totally ignore the Creator because the world is engineered as an olam, as a world, as a universe that can tolerate the obscuring of God. And so long as we are in this world and externally, we do not exhibit, so to speak, that same faith, so to speak, that we have internally. If God is only our internal master, but not our external master, i.e. the master of the world, of our surroundings, of our environment, then the connection is not complete. The Festival of Sukkot is engineered to complete what Yom Kippur started. It's engineered to shatter all of the notions of the olam, of the world that is obscuring or tolerating the ignorance to God. At the Festival of Sukkot, we are completing what we started in Yom Kippur to try to change our environment, change our surroundings, and to exhibit our faith and our tangible and visceral belief in God to make that also present around us. So what do we do on Sukkot? So the main eponymous mitzvah, of course, is to sit in a sukkah. Why do we sit in a sukkah? So like we mentioned, the verse tells us, so that your generations will know that the Almighty made us Sukkot, these huts or clouds of glory in the wilderness. What does that mean? So the Talmud tells us that what this is indicating to us is that we must dwell in temporary dwellings by leaving our permanent dwellings. What this means is as follows. What this means is that there was a time in our history where the knowledge of God was so ubiquitous, was so palpable, was so undeniable, and that was when we were at our peak, when we were at our acme. In the wilderness. Now, thousands of years later, we have uncertainty. We are trying, in this mitzvah, we are trying to recreate the conditions that reigned when God was taking care of us in the wilderness. And what does that mean? We leave our permanent dwellings and we move into our Temporary dwellings. We eschew this world as a permanent world and we reposition it, reframe it as a temporary world. That's important to stress. The Torah does not necessarily promote asceticism or monasticism. But the Torah tells us that our objective in this world is akin to a trip down a corridor, down a hallway, 
to try to get to a palace. We are in this temporary world to try to get to the permanent world, which is the spiritual world. And on Sukkot, we leave our permanent home and move into a temporary home. We are reinforcing the idea that what we are seeing around us is really nothing more than the temporary venue in the corridor, so to speak, on our way to our destination. We abandon our climate-controlled homes and move into a rickety gazebo and live there for a week. And we recognize that that is temporary. But the objective of moving into our sukkah is to glance over at our quote-unquote permanent house and try to see if there's really any difference between these two. Of course, we only live in the sukkah for seven days. And we live in the home for maybe 70 years. But in comparison to eternity, they're identical. Both are just different degrees of temporality. Neither is permanent. When we spend seven days living in what is undeniably a temporary dwelling, we are trying to reform the world around us, to transform the world around us into a world that we view as temporary and thereby dismantle the last of the barriers that separate us from our Creator, namely the external environmental barriers of this world. When we view this world as being permanent, that in effect is the equivalent of that internal barrier, the internal obstacle. It's just that's the internal obstacle brought around us into the environment around us. The Torah tells us, this is the time. These are the seven days to change that focus. Talmud tells us, we have to leave our permanent dwelling and move into a temporary one. We have to abandon the way of seeing the world as it is permanent and try to adopt a new approach. And of course, this is not supposed to be an isolated experience. This is a seven-day blitz to hopefully adopt a new attitude that we could take with us throughout the whole year. Now, it is interesting that exactly a half a year after the first night of Sukkot to the day is the first night of Pesach. So these two festivals are equidistant from each other. And both of them are seven-day festivals, and both of them involve this idea. A cessation of viewing this world as permanent and adopting a new view. Maybe every half a year we need that seven-day, so to speak, boot camp of living in a admittedly temporary world, and then we go back to the regular world with our new attitude, hopefully adopted. On Sukkot, of course, we leave our permanent homes 
and move into temporary homes. And for the next six months, we're like, oh, this is all temporary. It may look like permanent, but that is an optical illusion. And then six months later, when maybe the attitude is beginning to wane, we spend seven days eating the most tasteless, sawdusty crackers, the matzah. And our sages tell us that the matzah is food that is solely designed to achieve nutrition. There's no trappings at all to the matzah. It's flat, it's bare bones, it's basic, it's flour, water, nothing else. And that is there, again, the same kind of idea, to try to eradicate this idea that this world is the one that matters. No, we're here and we need fuel for our journey, so we need to have the nutrition, but that's it. And we can focus, hopefully, on trying to get down this corridor to arrive at our destination. So maybe that's a good reason why Sukkot is placed where it's placed. But that's the idea of the Sukkah. Rav Hirsch used to say that the Talmud tells us one of the laws of the Sukkah is that it has to be covered, of course, with the Schach, with the covering. But the Schach has to be made of something that grows from the ground, but now is detached from the ground. If you have, let's say, a tree that's still attached to the ground, and you just place it above your sukkah, that is an invalid sukkah. And he explained the meaning behind that. The Yetzahara, the evil inclination, the force that wants us to view this world as being permanent, he wants us connected as much as possible to this world. And on Sukkot, we sever, so to speak, the schach from this world. And we say, no, we're here temporarily. We're in the temporary dwelling place. But ultimately, our destination is the spiritual world. The great Chavetz Chaim once had a visitor. They say it's one of the Rothschilds or one of the great barons of Europe. was passing by the small shtetl in which the Chavetz Chaim lived. And he wanted to go, you know, pay his respects, come visit the great rabbi and spend some time with him. So he arrives at his dilapidated home and he is appalled by the sparse furnishings and the simple and bare conditions. And he asked him, where's all your furniture? So... The Chavetz Chaim responded, well, where is your furniture? So he says, my furniture, my furniture is in my mansion in Vienna. So the Chavetz Chaim said, but why don't you travel with it? He says, well, I'm, when I'm traveling, I don't bring my furniture. So the Chavetz Chaim said to him, okay, me too. I'm also traveling. This is temporary. My furniture, so to speak, is waiting for me in the ultimate home, in the permanent home. Here we're all temporary. When we sit in our temporary home in Sukkot, we are trying to reframe how we see this world. And even though it may look to us, may appear to us, like it is indeed permanent, ultimately 
we spend seven days to remember that it is nothing more than the distortion, the olam, the obfuscation of this world. And we're spending seven days to try to rid ourselves of that attitude. Now, the Talmud has a very dramatic story in the beginning of the book of Avodah Zarah. This is like a whole page of Talmud telling this very elaborate story. And it begins futuristically. Sometime in the future, the Almighty is going to take a Torah scroll and hold it in his chest. And he's going to announce, whoever studied Torah, whoever engaged in Torah, come, now it's time for your reward. So all the nations of the world are going to gather together in a big hodgepodge and make this nice line and try to say, okay, well, we want our reward. And they might just say, no, we have to first separate you out to different nations. So every group is separate to different nations. Okay, and every nation comes before God and makes their case. So it tells us how the Romans come. They're the first in line. And they say to God, okay, we want our reward. And they might say to them, okay, well, what did you do? How did you earn your reward? So they say to him, listen, we made marketplaces and we made bathhouses and we stockpiled tons of money and gold and silver. But really, the objective of all that was so the Jewish people could study Torah. So yes, we didn't directly study Torah, but we contributed to the Jewish people studying Torah and therefore we too have a share in the Torah of the Jewish people, and therefore we get reward now in this time in the future. So then my response to them, no, that's not really why you did it. You made your marketplaces to make money and to have brothels, and you made your bathhouses so that way you could have pleasure, and the money wasn't even yours, the money's all mine, and therefore he throws them out and they have to leave. And then the Persians come in. Very long story. The Persians make their case and they too are discredited. And finally, the Talmud says that they came back to God with the final plea. You know what? We didn't earn it yet. You're right. We have no response to your claims. But give us a chance. Give us a mitzvah, an opportunity to be able to earn the eternal reward. So the Almighty acquiesces. says, okay, I have one small, easy mitzvah, and that's the mitzvah of sukkah. Fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah, and I will grant you eternity. So every person goes and makes a sukkah on their roof, and the Almighty makes it really hot. And it gets so hot that they say, we're done with this sukkah. And they all go out of their sukkah and kick it. And that's the end of the story. They couldn't even fulfill one mitzvah. So there's a few interesting takeaways of this very interesting, futuristic, agadic teaching the Talmud. For one, I always use this as a good insight into the power of supporting Torah. The Romans said to God, hey, 
we did all these other ancillary things to make money, but the goal of that money was, was so the Jewish people could study Torah. And what do you might respond? They might not respond and say, well, that's not good enough. He said, that is good enough. But that wasn't really what you were doing. But suppose the Romans indeed had dedicated their efforts so the Jewish people could study Torah, then they would have had a good claim. It's just that that was not actually their goal and they didn't use their finances for that. So I think there's a very powerful proof in the Talmud that someone who does dedicate their finances and, and, their, and their wherewithal to support the Jewish people studying Torah, they will be granted eternal merit as a result. A very powerful insight. It's one of the fundraiser's favorite teachers in, in the Talmud. But in addition, what ends up here in the end? The Mai says, okay, I'm going to give you a mitzvah of sukkah. And if you fulfill it, you have one more shot. Apparently, out of all the mitzvahs in the Torah, the one mitzvah that most contributes, that most determines someone's eligibility for accessing eternal spiritual reward is sukkah. This is the authoritative litmus test for someone's eligibility for Olam Abba. Why? What about, I don't know, charity? What about Torah study? What about mezuzah, tefillin? There's a lot of other options, yet sukkah seems to be the one that's best suited to suss out whether someone is a good candidate for spiritual reward or not. So one of the answers given to this question is that the mitzvah of sukkah is one of only two mitzvahs that a person is entirely subsumed in the mitzvah. When you sit in a sukkah, you're completely enveloped by the sukkah. You are immersed in the mitzvah. And only this mitzvah, plus living in the land of Israel, there's only two mitzvahs that qualify. And therefore, maybe what this is teaching us is that when someone puts their entirety of self into a mitzvah, it affects every part of them. And it could transform them completely. Whereas if someone doesn't like an isolated mitzvah, you know, you wear tefillin on one arm, not the other arm, and not your legs, right? But when you sit in a sukkah, all of you is inside that sukkah. So maybe there is some power in this mitzvah to have a complete transformational effect on you entirely. But I think moreover, it does come back to the point of this mitzvah, the general concept of this mitzvah. Leave the permanent, dwell in the temporary. Change, alter your perspective on the world. Maybe what this is teaching us is that if someone wants to get a slice of the permanent world, that hinges upon their ability to recognize that this world is not the permanent world. This world is the 
temporary world. Only if someone is traversing the corridor to try to arrive at the palace gates, only someone who views this world as the corridor to the destination, only that person can arrive at the destination. But if you get caught up in this olam of all kinds of distractions that make you view this world as the destination of its own right, you'll never arrive at the end. And this mitzvah, the mitzvah of sukkah, really captures that idea. So we eschew this world, of course, for seven days, or we properly assign it its appropriate standing. And what happens? We're living or transported back to a world where we have close proximity to God. By moving in to the temporary residence, we get catapulted, so to speak, back to the world in the wilderness that we were close to God. And we become enveloped by God and surrounded by Him. In the words of the Kabbalists, we are sitting in God's shade. We are cocooned by God. Our sages add, that this is reminiscent of Adam being restored to paradise. Yes, he was booted from God's presence, from God's embrace. But Sukkot, it's like this opportunity, the seven days to go back into that world and that outlook and that attitude. And we can taste a little bit of what that is like. I think it's very important to mention this is a busy time of the year. If you are fortunate enough to have children who go to a Torah school, they're likely to be home in these critical days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And it's busy. You have to build your sukkah. You have to buy your four species. Maybe you have to de- decorate the sukkah. You have all the festival preparations. You still have to work. I say this is the time of year where Jews frequent Home Depot more than any other time of the year. It's very important to realize that Yes, it's a time to do these mitzvahs. And yes, we're very busy, but we have to make sure that we don't get angry, we don't get frustrated, we don't get irritated, we don't have any outbursts. I want to quote one of my rabbim, one of my teachers. His name was Rabbi Yisrael Meir Hamnik, and he actually passed away this past week. He was very sick, and he died at the young age of 66. So I wanted to share something that he used to say. He used to say, this is the time of year where the house is immaculate. If you clean the house and then someone makes a mess, it's a disaster. The house was so clean. And how did you make a mess? But if the place looks like it was hit by a tornado, everything is disheveled and everything is out of place and really needs to be tidied up and someone knocks something off on the floor, it's not such a big deal. If the floors are sparkling clean, you take extra care to not make them dirty. Now, our spiritual worlds, our spiritual homes, so to speak, are clean. We were just cleansed on Yom Kippur. We have no sins with us. And therefore, now is the time we have to be extra fastidious and extra meticulous to not sully this beautiful 
immaculate spiritual edifice. I think it's a good attitude to talk about this time of the year and all the things we have to do. It's important to remember that, to not just think about the ideas of Sukkot, but a very practical level to make sure that we are maintaining the level of behavior, the requisite level of behavior that is fitting for this time of year. So that's some of the ideas of the mitzvah of Sukkah. I want to quickly talk about the mitzvah of the four species, which is the other mitzvah of these days to try to understand what is actually happening here on a deep level and how it fits into some of the ideas that we mentioned hitherto. So we have the four species, and the mitzvah is we take in our right hand, we take a lulav, which is a palm branch, and that is flanked by three hadasim, three myrtle branches, two aravos, two willow branches, and they're attached together, and that's what you hold in your right hand. In your left hand, you hold the esrog, the citron fruit, and you make the blessing, and you shake them in all directions. And I always say this is the one mitzvah that observant Jews don't want their co-workers to see them doing. Because it seems like it's a very strange mitzvah. It's one of those mitzvahs, I call it a double-take mitzvah. You see someone doing it, like, what? You look, you're like, you take a double-take. That's a very strange thing. You're taking these seemingly random assortment of branches and a fruit, you make a blessing on it, and you shake it. What's actually going on over here in this, in this mitzvah? So first off, the Kabbalists reveal to us something very interesting. They tell us that just as Israel, the land of Israel, is different than all the other lands, in that all the other lands, there is a heavenly filter through which the godly vitality must go through. So if you remember, we have Jacob having a fight with the angel of Asaph in the book of Genesis. What does it mean, the angel of Asaph? It means that that particular nation has an angel and all the vitality from God has to filter through that angel. So that applies by every nation and that applies by every land. But the Jewish people, we have no filter. And the land of Israel has no filter. That's what we're told in the sources. The Ramban brings this in his commentary multiple times throughout the Torah. Similarly, the sages tell us that every particular kind of fruit and tree has its own, so to speak, heavenly angel through which the lifeblood, the vitality from God, and as we know, everything in this world must have some sort of lifeline to the spiritual world, the vitality for every fruit and every tree must filter through a certain angel. But there's four species that don't have a filter. And they are the four species that we shake on Sukkot, the, the palm trees, and the willows, and the myrtles, and the citrons. That's an interesting idea, that there's something kind of on a Kabbalistic spiritual level that separates these four particular species from all the other ones. Now, the Midrash makes this unusual mitzvah a little bit more understandable to us by telling us that these four species correspond to four different parts of the human body. The esrog corresponds to the heart, 
kind of looks like a like a like a fist, kind of looks like in the shape of a heart. And the lulav, the palm branch, is shaped like a spine. And the hadas, the myrtle, it's similar to the eyes, and the willow looks like lips. What this is telling us, we're told, that the heart, which is kind of the, you know, the seat of our emotion and our intellect, and the spine, which is the frame of the body, and the eyes, which of course are our portals to interface with this world, and the lips, which is of course what we use to communicate. These are all areas where we have to make a choice. Are we going to sin? Or we're going to consecrate them and use them for God. And this mitzvah of taking these four different fruits corresponding to the four different organs and bringing them together and doing a mitzvah with them, that's there to remind us to use these four parts of our body for a mitzvah. That's one idea that we're told in the Midrash. A second idea we're told in the Midrash is that these four Species are different in that the citron has a good smell and a good taste, and the lulav has a good taste but no smell, and the hadas, the myrtle branch, has a great smell but no taste, and finally, the willow branch has none of them. It doesn't have any smell and doesn't have any taste. And this corresponds to the four kinds of Jews. You have Jews who have everything, both Torah study and good deeds. And you have Jews who have nothing, neither Torah nor good deeds. And you have some Jews that have one or the other. Some have Torah but not good deeds, and some have good deeds and not Torah. And they correspond to the four different kinds of species, four different kinds of Jews. And what this reveals to us is that on this festival, we bring all the different kinds of Jews together. And perhaps we can speculate that this sort of mitzvah can only happen right after Yom Kippur. Only right after Yom Kippur, when everyone's been elevated. Even the sinner's been elevated. The sinner has been cleansed as well. Only then can all these four kinds of Jews come together for a mitzvah. But it's also interesting here. If you study the laws of the four species, you'll discover that there are myriad details governing what renders each one of these four species either good or not good. So, for example, if you were to take a little pin and stick it into the S-Rogue, that would right away disqualify the S-Rogue. But if you do the same thing for the Arava, for the willow branch... Totally kosher, 100% kosher. So my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, what this mitzvah is also revealing to us is that what is required of the righteous, what is required of the person that has both Torah and good deeds, that far exceeds what is demanded of the sinner. The greater you are, the more responsibility you have and the more that is demanded of you. If you're the S-Rogue, if you're the totally righteous person, any little 
imperfection is going to render you disqualified. You have to be extra fastidious to make sure that you don't ruin your spiritual standing. Now, the Chavetz Chaim of Blessed Memory used to say that, you know, based upon this Midrash, so we have three kinds of Jews that are flawed. We have some Jews that have nothing that's corresponding to the willow branches. And we have some Jews that have some, not the other. They either have Torah, but not good deeds, good deeds, but not Torah. That corresponds to the Lulav and the Hadassim. And those three are held in one hand, in the right hand. And the Esrog is held by itself in the left hand. So the Chavetz Chaim used to say that what this is teaching us, that the righteous, they only unite with the three other kinds of Jews to do a mitzvah. But when there's no mitzvah, they're separate. Whereas the lulav is bound together with the other two, the myrtle branch and the and the willow branches, and they're always together, the esrog is separate. To do a mitzvah, we come together. But if we're not doing a mitzvah, then we are separate, which I thought was an interesting idea. Now, I wanted to share a beautiful story that I read this year about one of the great Hasidic masters. It used to be that finding an esrog was very difficult. They didn't have kind of the international commerce and the ability to ship things from different countries. And the esrog, the citron, it is only indigenous to certain places and certain climates. And therefore, it was very rare to find a kosher esrog in some shtetl somewhere in Poland or Lithuania or Russia or Belarus or someplace like that. So it used to be whenever you would have an esrog, Oftentimes, the entire community would share an esrog, and to find a really nice one was very rare. So one year, the Hasidic master was in his court, and he gets this announcement, you have to come see this esrog, the most gorgeous, the most beautiful, the most perfect esrog in the world. And they bring him this esrog, and he looks at it, and it's unbelievable. It is completely flawless. It has no brown dots. It has no black dots. There's no imperfections. There's no parts of it that are missing. It's an exquisite gem. But he says, you know what? It's a little too perfect for me. I don't want it. And then he goes for an imperfect esrog. So one of the people that were there says, you know what, if uh, the great rabbi doesn't want it, if the great master doesn't want it, it's so perfect. I'll take it for myself. So he says, you know what, I have this esrog, the most gorgeous esrog the world has ever seen, and I'm going to use this to shake with my lulav over the course of the seven days of the festival. So the first day, he's so excited Festival is starting. He's been waiting for the festival to start. He has this flawless esrog, and he makes his blessing. And he's so excited, but he's also a little bit nervous because he doesn't want to drop it, that he ends up dropping it. And his precious esrog goes tumbling down to the floor and breaks. And of course, he's distraught, and he's beside himself. And he bends down to pick up the pieces And he sees something amazing. 
he sees that the pitam, which is the part of the esrog, that little little bulge that comes out of the esrog, the pitam was actually stuck into the esrog with a pin, meaning that this esrog was never kosher. What happened was that the pitam had fallen off, and because it was such a flawless esrog, the person or the unscrupulous seller says, "I can't." Forfeit this asteroid. He took a pin and stuck into the pitum and plugged it back in to the body of the asteroid in a way that you couldn't actually see that it was cracked and was pawning it off, was selling it off as if it was legit. And the entire synagogue and the entire court of this great Hasidic master was in an uproar. Our master must have prophecy. Because he had the option of taking this asteroid and it was visually flawless. He must have known that it wasn't actually kosher. And the whole place was just beside themselves. So they ran to the Rebbe, they ran to the Chesed Master and they, they told him what happened. And they said, you, you must be a prophet. You must have the Holy Spirit. You must be endowed with some sort of clairvoyance to be able to see that this Ezra was not kosher. So the great Hasidic master responds to them and says, no, 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 you, you got it all wrong. I'm not a prophet. I don't have clairvoyance. But I do know something. And what I know is that there's no one that's completely perfect. Every Ezra has a flaw. And I said, you know what? If, if this Esrog does not have a visible flaw, it must have an invisible flaw. And as they say, it's better to have the devil you know than the devil you don't know. I couldn't tell what the invisible flaw was and who knows what it could have been. And therefore I said, I'd rather take the imperfect Esrog. At least I know why it's imperfect. And the insight, I think, for us is, you know, we went through a whole season of Yom Kippur And the day is designed to highlight all our imperfections. And sometimes we finish that experience feeling a little down, feeling imperfect. And it's important for us to remember, just as there is no perfect esrog, there's no perfectly righteous person, the verse tells us there's no righteous person in the world that does good but doesn't sin, everyone's imperfect, and that is okay. So we gather the four species and we shape them in all different directions. What this means, it's a very Kabbalistic concept, but our sages tell us that what's happening, so to speak, Kabbalistically in the spiritual world, when we shape the Luvan Esrog, very transformational and esoteric themes that are happening, but in effect, we're actually shaking off any vestiges of, so to speak, influence of the Sahara and of the Satan and all the other nefarious influences. They're all being shooken off when we shake the Lul of an Esrog. And via this mitzvah, we have both the feelings of unity, the feelings of aspirations. We take all the Jews together, but we also aspire, no matter how or no matter where we find ourselves 
at a given moment to try to aspire to become better, to become more perfect, to upgrade ourselves. Our sages tell us as well that if you look at the lulav, it looks a little bit like a like a sword. And that's supposed to symbolize that we just went to war on Yom Kippur and we emerged victorious. And that would explain another connection between these two festivals, namely that we went to war, we went to battle, and we came back brandishing the lulav to demonstrate that we are still standing. So those are some of the ideas of this particular mitzvah. Of course, there are more. But this is the festival of celebration. It's a time where we are clean. We are cleansed. We have been atoned for on Yom Kippur. And we try to complete that journey. We take that last mile and say, okay, this whole world around us, it's really temporary. And that is finishing what we started. We also symbolize our victory, so to speak, and we try to take it to the next step. And finally, the last idea I wanted to share on the Festival of Sukkot, the verse tells us this is from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 14. We celebrate Sukkot for seven days. You should be joyous in your festival. There is a mitzvah for us to be joyous. In fact, like I mentioned at the onset, the nickname of this festival is Zman Sebchaser, the time of our joy. But the verse concludes, For God will bless all your handiwork and all of your property and all of your assets. And the commentaries explain that this is an if-then statement. If we are joyous and glad on the festival of Sukkot, then the Almighty will give us bountiful blessings for the rest of the year. And now that we know a little bit more about some of the deeper meanings of these days and the power that is present in these days, please God, we will indeed have a joyous and meaningful and uplifting and productive Sukkot and unlock all the blessings and all the bounties of these days. As always, my email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. Look forward to any questions, comments, or feedback.